Welcome to this special web extra edition of Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American, posted on December 23rd, 2010. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode... The environmentalists have been very, very good about identifying the problems we need to solve. They're horrible at picking what the answers are. So I actually believe most environmentalists, most of the time, are getting in the way of progress, real economic progress. That's Vinod Kosla. He's perhaps the world's best-known investor in clean technologies. Kosla was interviewed recently by Scientific American editor Mark Fischetti at the Going Green Conference in San Francisco, part of which became a Q&A in the January issue of the magazine. Here's an edited version of that interview. This is Vinod Kosla. I'm sure most of you know him. Uh, for the record, he's the uh, founder of Kosla Ventures, and um, which does a lot of funding for the kinds of things Sorry, you all are interested in. Vinod's um, also a formerly general partner of Kleiner Perkins and founder of uh, Sun Microsystems. And I think he now qualifies as a pop icon, too. So Forbes 400's out, and Vinod's in there. Pop icon for nerds. <laughs> um, the question of the day here seems to be which clean technologies are paying off. And uh, there's lots of ways to try to answer that. So I thought maybe we could um, use a few of, of, of the mantras that we hear in clean tech and venture capital to try to maybe see a way to, to an answer. And um, then we'll talk about a few other events. So, um, Vinod, one of your mantras. Uh, if it scale, doesn't scale, it doesn't matter. Um, so which clean technologies seem to be scaling and which seem to not be? You know, Categories, wind, of course, is scaling, but there's not a lot of innovation in wind. There's a few brand new things, uh, but I'm surprised at how little innovation there is. What wind really needs is storage, and storage hadn't yet started to scale. Uh, almost all the attempts are toyish, I would call them. We need something radical, and I do believe it'll come along. Uh, solar, solar seems to be doing well. Uh, there's way too many companies trying to do the same thing and not enough trying to do anything radically different. If we want to come back to that question of what it takes to be successful in solar today, the market itself is growing, um, not declining in cost fast enough, and definitely not fast enough to reach unsubsidized market competitiveness, which is one of my mantras. Um, and it's mostly the fault of investors and entrepreneurs who are trying to do the next marginal thing as opposed to the next radical thing. Mm. We can come back to it. The most interesting area to me uh, is the one that people soured on the most, which is biofuels. Uh, Amris had an IPO um, that was very, very successful. Um, Another one of our companies, Devo, is on file. And I see a series of those uh, because I think the economics in that sector will prove themselves out in the next two years. And there's, if you look inside the covers, there's enough proof that half a dozen, not just our technologies, but half a dozen technologies will make economic sense. Mm -hmm. uh, some with subsidies, some without subsidies. And those are the ones that are most interesting to me because they'll scale infinitely. Uh, mantra number two, uh, and I like this one, don't invest in clean tech. Invest in main tech. What is main tech? 
Solar and wind is sort of this very narrow definition of clean tech, uh, probably the least interesting segment, though there's some really interesting new things in solar we can talk about. Um, we're doing engines, really exciting area. I suspect some of the biggest companies will be built in radical new engines. Uh, you're doing air conditioners. Now, th that to me is main tech. Now, air conditioning that doesn't cost any more and takes 80% less energy. Now, that's worth talking about. Lighting that costs, pays for itself in the first 12 months, not in 12 years, is worth talking about. We're doing glass. We're doing cement. That's the infrastructure of society. It's not this sort of fringe clean tech stuff that depends on subsidies. That's my view. And we're going to create, as a community, say, 10 new Googles that are, in your terms, clean tech. They're going to have to be main tech companies. They're going to be mainstream markets that work unsubsidized. My personal view is anything that doesn't achieve unsubsidized market competitiveness within seven years of starting to scale is not worth funding. Right? And that rule applies to every one of the companies we fund, because if they don't get there in that much time scaling, and there may be three, four, five years of development before you start scaling when you're doing R&D, but if you can't get to market competitiveness, you might work in the US, but you're not going to work in China or India. There's no subsidies in India. There's no subsidies for solar in Chile um, or Africa or most of the world, and most of the interesting markets in energy-related markets are high-growth, developing world markets. And if you're not competitive there, unsubsidized, forget it. You're, you're a niche company. So that's what I mean by main tech. Okay. That's why we are doing engines and lighting and air conditioners and all kinds of fun stuff that, uh, frankly, people don't want to work on because they're not the same thing as the other next VC firm is doing. Right. I don't think I've heard any talk about any of those today. <laughs> Maybe cement. Um, uh, so that brings up a, a sort of related point. For, for some years now, uh, at these kinds of conferences, so, sooner or later, some uh, venture capitalist says, well, great idea, but you know, if it doesn't compete with oil for energy technologies at $40 a barrel, then I'm not interested. Or, or maybe some of them would say $50 a barrel. And I'm wondering, A, why that, since, since, uh, oil has really been well above that for some time, and the big uh, oil states have said they, they they want to make their basement eighty dollars a barrel. Where's the line? Um, I actually think a reasonable estimate, given we are in a relatively low in economic growth, which means we are in a relative low in demand growth, hmm. that the price is probably at a pre pretty stable point. So. One simple metric uh, I use is if it's market competitive today, unsubsidized, and you work worldwide. If it's market competitive today, subsidized, and you're competitive just in the U.S. Uh, but let's say you are at $75, whether it's subsidized or unsubsidized. Chances are by your fifth plant, you'll be at 60. By your 15th plant, you'll be at 50. Um, so it's a question of when. None of the biofuels technologies are at scale enough to be anywhere near their cost low point. So their first plant economics sort of has to be roughly in the range 
and then it'll keep declining as you build more plants. Um, my personal view is there are technologies that are market competitive, unsubsidized today at $75 oil. Mm-hmm. You know, if you built a reasonable size plant, 50 million gallons, not a billion dollar plant, but say a hundred million dollar plant. Right. Yeah. Uh, that's probably the biggest you can do on your first plant because you don't want it to be too expensive. Um, those ones will keep declining in cost. And they'll decline to a point on the maturity of the technology. But you build the 50 of plants of one technology, then the ecosystem around it will start developing. Mm-hmm. Biomass will get a lot cheaper. Your feedstocks will get a lot cheaper. Um, John Deere will be doing custom equipment for shredding and moving your biomass. And so then the ecosystem starts to help you. Uh, I think if we get to $75, we won't stop till we are at $30 a barrel, 2000, now it's real dollars, not inflated dollars. But my metric, and I'm on the record as saying by 2030, the price of oil in 2006 dollars will be $30 a barrel. I fully believe that, and I believe it won't be because we ran, uh, we, we stopped using oil, it'll be because there's plenty of competition for oil. Okay. Interesting. All right. Um, you've, re- you've uh, talked about solar, wind, bio. Um, it seems, again, if you go to these kinds of meetings, you know, there's a hot technology each year. So several years ago, right, it was wind and solar. You know, two years ago, it was biofuels everywhere. Last year, is the smart grid. Um, it seems to be a moving target. Um, and uh, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. If it is, is there, is there a reason for that? And uh, by the way, also, we were talking about smart grid before. I'd like you to Explain what you think smart grid means. Um, so one of the problems with hot technologies is, and, and maybe there's a few environmentalists here, uh, the environmentalists have been very, very good about identifying the problems we need to solve. They're horrible at picking what the answers are. So I actually believe most environmentalists, most of the time, are getting in the way of progress, real economic progress, Things that make economic sense. One rule I use is economic gravity always wins. Can't challenge it. And that's why this mantra around unsubsidized market competitiveness. And when environmentalists, you know, I was talking to somebody about the Nissan Leaf, $25,000, $26,000 car, $20,000 worth of batteries. Give me a break. You know, I, the Chevy Volt, which is a good car, is expected by 2012 to ship 40,000 units. The Tata Nano, the first day it opened for registration, you could register to buy one, had 200,000 orders. Right? Why does it matter what you do with the world? We have to make technologies like the Tata Nano, which, by the way, is the bulk of the growth in the world market is in India and China in automobiles. Economic. So economic gravity is absolutely key, and this is back to main tech, not clean tech. You know, so we can do these fringe things around electric cars, and we are very aggressively investing in batteries. But I don't think electric cars make sense economically. They make great sense for a Tesla. In a $100,000 car, the battery pack, the 20 grand doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's frankly a fun, sexy car 
great for anybody to own, right? Uh, but, but you're not a price-sensitive buyer. The bulk of the world is price-sensitive. They're going to drive the equivalent of the Tata Nano. If you want to solve any problem, make that low carbon, right? Or, and I'm actually pretty hopeful, um, that we'll have batteries that cost one-tenth as much. Mm-hmm. Now, almost certainly... Traditional lithium-ion bulk batteries will not be around in 15 years. Now, I'm saying something that nobody else believes, so uh, I'll go on the record again. It's a big surprise. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, we're doing solid-state lithium-ion batteries. Maybe that'll work. We're doing magnesium batteries. Maybe that'll work. We're doing radical other things. I call them quantum nano-thingamajigits, right? we're doing all kinds of stuff. And I can't tell you what will work. I'm not saying one of our battery approaches will work. But almost certainly the winning battery in 15 years is one that has very low probability of working in people's eyes today. I can tell you it is unlikely to be a battery that people expect to be a winner. And this comes back to a more, I'm wondering for your question so you can ask me again. Yeah, yeah, I will. I sort of have a thesis that the most interesting technologies, and so there's clean tech companies, but in main tech, to win the big battle of economic gravity and to win in the market unsubsidized market competitiveness, all the companies that are trying things that have radical technologies. I call them, hey, if it has 90% probability of failing as an attempt to develop this technology, then I like it. Why? Because they're likely to be the ones that are Six Sigma technologies that have quantum jumps in performance. So I call this the black swan thesis of energy. Don't look for solutions in high probability areas. Those are all incremental. Look for solutions in the tails of the distribution of likely to succeed. Actually, um, that brings me to a so, question. So one of my favorites yeah. is we like to invest in stuff that has a 90% probability of failure. Uh, uh, and no other investor likes that, and so we sort of have this feel to ourselves, which is nice. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, so, I did tell my investors when we were starting the fund that we were non-fiduciary investors, so don't count on us to be fiduciary. Right. So, so okay, uh, uh, this is a quote from you that sort of feeds in right into that. Um, in the last year, you've, you've started two funds um, in a bad fundraising climate that are quite substantial. And uh, when, when you're asked about that, um, you said money's not the problem. Finding the innovative technical ideas is the hard part. Now, a lot of people in this room and beyond are saying, what are you talking about? Uh, finding money is exactly my problem. I can't find enough of it. Um, so what do, you, what do you mean by that? And, and I think it feeds into well, what you were you just know, talking about. Look, we have plenty of money to invest. We're probably investing as aggressively as we ever did. Uh, we probably make more investments than we did uh, this year than last year, and last year we made more investments than the year before, despite how bad the climate was. Uh, I don't know if those numbers are exactly right, but roughly. But, you know, the trend is we, are, we have more people, so we're doing things more aggressively. The problem at least from my point of view, is finding the people who want to do something other than incremental or narrow, non-scalable market. You know, you want to do biodiesel from waste, great. It's actually a good market. Somebody will be succeed. 
But could you build a really large company out of it? No, not likely. Uh, could you do a one-off? Absolutely. Um, and then there's people trying to make magic work where it hasn't worked. Algae, I've looked at two dozen business plans. Not one works. Now, could you do an algae company for a high-value product like a nutraceutical? Absolutely. For those of you doing algae, it suggests shift your guns to high-value products. Might work. At this point, I'm still open to looking. I look at every algae plan that comes in the door. But after two dozen, I haven't found one where the economics works. But it's worse than that. I can't look at their process costs and tell you what breakthroughs will get them to the right point. So when I can't even identify the hypothetical breakthroughs, where's their improvement uh, room for a 5x improvement? I can't find them. So that's how we look at things. You know, uh, I think there's plenty of money. There's not enough breakthrough technologies. There's not enough great PhDs in these fields. You know, I actually add up the number of PhDs in each of our companies. And I, I call every CEO and ask them, how many PhDs did you hire last month? I mean, this is my standard question. There's not enough technical talent for large breakthroughs. And so people are doing incremental things. And our universities weren't producing any of these people till about two, three years ago when interest in clean tech or energy technologies increased. And I think that's the fundamental problem. The good news is now all the good PhD students are going into these areas. And so 10 years from now, innovation will explode. That's the good news. Um, if I might take another moment, there's this other mantra related to not enough money around that it takes too much money, right, right to do clean tech. Absolutely wrong. It's a fallacy. First journalists like to talk about it because they have something to write about. I've looked at our portfolio. The amount of money needed to cash flow break-even or IPO or a reasonable point where you sell the company does not look any different for our clean tech portfolio or main tech portfolio than it does for the last 15 years I was at Kleiner looking at information technology or telecom equipment, or pick your favorite area, enterprise software. Yeah, internet, pretty small amount of money needed, but that's more an exception. If I look at it over the 90s, there was a lot of companies that needed 50 million to break even. Our lighting companies will need 50 million. Our air conditioning companies will need 50 million. There were a lot of companies that were doing chips or things like that, or telecom systems that needed 100 million to break even. Plenty of companies that fit into that category. Are there a few companies that need three, four, five hundred million? Absolutely. But we had biotech companies that needed three, four hundred million. And the distribution looks about the same. That's the surprise. So I'll shut up since we have little time. Yeah. Um, let's open it to questions. Um, anybody, please use the mics or yell so I can repeat it. What's the most exciting innovation of a note season in the next five years? And, and I, can I amplify that um, with another quote? I only work on things that are intriguing to me, and so I always switch every few years. I get bored of an area. I understand an area. I know it well. It becomes time to learn something new. So where are you learning next? Yeah. Um, look, it's, I think 
every area I look at is exciting. I mean, I'm, I'm not being facetious. You know, we looked at air conditioning. We expected we'd find better compressors. But that's marginal. We discovered a brain new thermodynamic cycle. Nobody's really commercialized a new thermodynamic cycle 50 or maybe even 100 years. I wouldn't have expected that. At least science I knew and experts I knew said, done, nothing new. I didn't think we'd be investing in glass. I, I, I didn't think we'd be inventing a brain new engine type. Right? That's 50% more efficient at less cost than today's engines, when a hybrid is only 25% more efficient at best, at best. An internal combustion engine that gives you twice the efficiency boost that a hybrid does. So, uh, frankly, what's clear to me is as we look to old areas, what's wrong with it is people who've been in that field for 30 years not taking a fresh look at what they've done when the world around them has changed. Power electronics, we are starting to talk about smart grid. Very little has changed. It should be completely revamped. Even 15 years ago, there was a few hundred sources on the grid and millions of consumers. Today, there's tens of thousands of sources. The grid needs to be redesigned. It has to be redesigned incrementally, one little piece at a time. Smart grid is about that. It's not about the smart meters. Smart meters, there are only 100 million electric connections in this country or something, give or take 20 million. Um, that's a small number. You get a buck or two a month out of a meter in savings, uh, your, your share of the revenue, it's a pretty tiny market compared to $200 billion for reinventing engines. So uh, I think every area I look under, no matter how archaic, there's innovation to be had. That's, that's a surprise to me. I, would, didn't, I wouldn't have expected that. Great. Let's try to get one more question, and then uh, we may have to wrap it up. All right. One of the last. My name is Jerome Weedman, and uh, I'm going to talk to you about a launch point technology project that sounds like a new engine. Um, it's a electronically controlled valve system, and studies have shown from Bosch and others that an electronically controlled valve system can increase engine efficiency by 30% without any other changes. Uh, they have a really nice one up their sleeve. Is this the type of... Um, so you, you, of you bring up an interesting point. I don't know LaunchPoint Technologies. Yes, it's a new, uh, it, it, it's a small company, a bunch yeah. of PhDs. But there's many, many areas of traditional mechanical engineering where we're still using old systems like cams and yes. for timing, things like that. Yes. And when I mentioned power electronics, what you need to do to have precise timing is much better power electronics devices to rapidly switch on and off a valve. I yes. don't know what... Right? So it is absolutely an area of innovation. Engines shouldn't have timing based on the cam. That's a fixed thing. Driving conditions change, you should change timing. Right. So it's just one example um, uh whether that's an example or not, there's a hundred things like that I've seen in power electronics uh, that should change and would change the application dramatically. That's one of them. I've always wondered why all valves aren't electronically controlled in engines. 
why wind turbines have to run at a particular speed with a gearbox instead of converting all the energy into power and then converting the power into the frequency and phase and everything else you need. Entirely possible, very likely, nobody's paying attention to it because smart meters are easy to do. Well, they have a very nice <laughs> functional prototype in hand. Thank you. Uh, I think we have to wrap up. Thank you, Vinod, for being here. Thank you, everybody. Check out the edited print version of this interview in the January issue of Scientific American. For Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Thank you.